Welcome to Higher Potential with Indeed. Indeed's new 2022 DNI report has just gone live. It's one of the most comprehensive studies into DNI issues in Australian workplaces. Click the link in this episode's description to get your free copy. A welcoming workplace is built from the ground up with attention to diversity, inclusion, accessibility, and openness. But the way many leaders and companies approach this is often full of grey areas, uncertainty and quite possibly fear. High Potential with Indeed is here to help demystify the process through the most powerful channel possible, conversations. Groundbreaking ones too. I'm your host, Cathy Ngo, diversity, equity and inclusion changemaker and presenter. I've spent over a decade in HR, corporate affairs and communications, but I'm most passionate about pushing the boundaries relating to diversity, equity and inclusion. In this podcast series, we'll tackle the issues we face in the modern workplace, from diversity and inclusion to remote working, accessibility, fair hiring practices and more. This podcast is an initiative of Indeed.com the world's number one job site with over 250 million unique visitors every month from over 60 different countries. Before we dive in, I wish to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are meeting today and to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders who may be listening. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Equal pay is often thought as a comparison between how much a woman and a man in the same role make. However, these figures often fail to take into account intersectional disadvantages. For example, the difference between what a white man earns versus an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander woman is likely to be significantly greater than that of a white man versus a white woman. In this episode, we discuss the nuances of intersectionality and how different minority groups face varying degrees of financial inequality in the workplace and what organisations can do today to guard against perpetuating these inequalities. Our guest this week is Jessica Freer, Senior Manager, Inclusion and Diversity at Westpac. Welcome, Jess. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. We'd love to hear more about your role at Westpac and some of the challenges and opportunities that you face each day. Sure. The role in itself is very diverse. Every day looks really different. Can be anything from working on blue sky strategy development through to helping our employees and our leaders interpret the policies that we own, usually when it's potentially sensitive or vulnerable circumstances that people are faced with in their roles. Perhaps they're going through pregnancy loss or experiencing domestic violence and we're really there to help interpret that and support the employee. It's lots of work with data, trying to understand our workforce how they feel about working with us, how they feel included in the workplace, what we can do to support them. We work really closely with, we've got a very passionate group of employee action groups, which are employees who really help drive the inclusion and diversity agenda forward. So we we help act as the governing body for them. 
And then really just working through anything to do with inclusion. It might be fixing a system that doesn't have inclusive language. It might be providing options for employees to help them in their day-to-day. It might be creating a support plan for a neurodiverse employee and how they work with their leader. So it's the full gamut. It's everything that we can get involved in to create a more inclusive workplace for our employees. In terms of the opportunities, I think the biggest opportunity we have at the moment is in the growing advocacy. Social impact is becoming more embedded in how people talk and what they expect of a workplace. And so this is huge growing advocacy body for how we actually create a more inclusive work environment. And there's expectations that we must meet from for our employees and our leaders. We're getting more and more, more and more attention from the board, from our leaders to really deliver on all of our objectives around diversity and inclusion. So that's really exciting and trying to harness that it has a real ripple effect through the organisation on how we deliver through those employee action groups, through passionate employees who really want to make a change. So that's a real great opportunity. The challenge that we have is the sheer scale and enormity of the organisation. We're constantly learning more about identity, diversity, even the language is evolving. So all of the change that we're trying to drive, we're trying to do that at a huge scale across the organisation. So driving change can be quite tricky. We're trying to find the right channels and the right levers to pull to really get that change and make it happen. Oh, amazing. How many employees does Westpac have now? 40,000? Around 40,000. Yeah. yeah, wow. Certainly a couple of years ago, there wasn't much talk about identity and now like people are starting to be a lot more aware about identities and that's why we're talking about intersectionality today and the complexities of it, but also the opportunities that it brings as well because it's always good to understand the different layers of identity and how leaders sometimes can inadvertently exclude people. So I'm excited to dive into this topic today, which is also a fairly new topic to wrap our heads around. Can you break it down for our listeners who might be learning about what intersectionality means and why awareness of intersectional inequality or bias is so important? It's a really important one. It's tricky to get your head around because there are so many ways a person identifies. So your identity is made up of so many different characteristics and intersectionality is essentially the cross-section of those different facets of your identity. So think about yourself What's your gender identity? What cultural or racial background do you identify with? What's your sexual orientation? Do you live with a disability or a serious health condition? So many facets of your identity can cross over and almost compound the effects of inclusion or exclusion. So for those who are in groups that might be more susceptible to discrimination, that's compounded when there's intersectionality and makes it even more difficult. I'll give you a live example. When you think about uh, over the last 10 years, there's been a huge focus on women in leadership and growing gender equality in leadership. And we've been making great progress. There's more women in leadership overall. We're seeing that progress, which is amazing. But as you look across C-suite or senior leadership across corporate Australia, you may see more women, but do you see more women of colour? Do you see more women who identify as gay or who live with a disability Not so much. So you can see that there are inequalities within the group that we're not seeing through visibly today. For example, an Aboriginal woman might experience gender 
and racial discrimination, but she will experience gender bias differently to a white woman and she will experience racial discrimination differently to an Aboriginal man. So there's that crossover that makes it tricky to identify from an employer's perspective of those groups and how they interact, but then also what the experience for that individual is. Mm. I can certainly relate because I identify as Asian Australian. I'm born here, bred here, but when I was in my HR role back in the days, there was a lot of talk about Asian women and ambition or lack thereof. And then I said, no, it's not that they lack ambition. It's just due to the inequalities, the inequities in the system that has prevented. And people usually get quite defensive about that. It's like, no, it's just we're all based on merit. So how do you normally respond to something like that when there's this perception of merit? It's an interesting one. I think that because identity is so individual, no one can really comment on the type of inequality that you might experience. I can give you a good example of employees that I've interacted with who one employee comes to mind who born in Korea, has you know, lived her entire life in Australia, is seen visibly looks Korean. So people make assumptions about her identity based on how she looks and what her name is. But she is through and through identifies as Australian and has grown up around all of the systems, the beliefs, the cultural values of Australian society over Korean society. But when asked in a survey, what's your ancestry, your cultural heritage, et cetera, that doesn't look like the identity that she actually experiences day to day. And there are assumptions made about that when, as you say, thinking about her career progression and how she wants to move up in the world. And she has to kind of fight that day to day, which makes it difficult. Mm, Yeah, I can certainly relate to that. And it must be, goodness me, so exhausting. (laughs) (laughs) I used to work with someone who's Korean, Australian. She would be asked, what's your recommendation for yum cha? Yeah, it's that micro discrimination that actually builds up across that intersectionality and makes life difficult for how you want to be perceived and how you want to have your career progression experienced because people are making assumptions based on bias. Mm. And unfortunately, unconscious bias training was very popular maybe 10 years ago, but are we seeing systematic change based on all of that effort and investment organisations are making? Probably not so much. It's probably more that the external social environment has changed where people are building more understanding, where they're seeing movements like Black Lives Matter and seeing, hey, actually, how does that relate to my experience? And so seeing those confronting social issues, people are starting to bring them to work into that context and think about how their employees or their colleagues are experiencing different levels of inclusion or exclusion at work. You mentioned social impact advocacy work earlier in the conversation as well. And I want to unpack that a little because it's been a lot noisier right now, but in a good way. Like I personally find it a good thing because I don't really believe that with those sorts of issues, we should separate it between work life and home life because to me, it's just life and whatever you experience, you also bring into the workplace. For Westpac or for yourself, like what does social impact mean? What does it involve? 
So there's two parts to this. One is the organisational response to those social issues and social movements. And that's where I think it's really important that organisations have a stance. And there's a, there's a real challenge with that. And we saw this with corporate organisations having a say in the marriage plebiscite a few years ago. We saw employees who didn't agree with marriage equality feel excluded because of the position of the organisation. But it's an expectation that organisations put a position forward in how they want to respond to social challenges now. You see that in the development of reconciliation action plans, access and inclusion plans around accessibility and disability. You see that in commitments around gender equality. You're seeing this whole movement where the organisations are responding to social issues because we know they impact in the workplace. And it's not to say that they're separate. It's to say that they have nuances that impact our workforce. So it's a social challenge, but we know it's a business challenge. And so that's where the two come together. It's really important also to really understand that there are practices, there are belief systems, there's value sets that sit in the organisation have been ingrained for a really long time. For an organisation as old as Westpac, right, there's a legacy there of institutionalism and now we need to consider how we shape that institution going forward. Corporate Australia has been defined in terms of its values and belief systems for many years by essentially heterosexual, white, able-bodied men. And so that sets a core of how those belief systems evolve and it needs to evolve and sit out of that. It's really important that diversity isn't just seen as a numbers game, that it's seen as embracing the strength of diverse people, thinking about their intersectionality and thinking about how we provide an environment that can support different individuals to thrive. I often talk about diversity and inclusion feeling a little bit like a donor organ transplant where if you haven't got the recipient primed and ready to have a supportive environment to really bring that organ into the system, it can reject it. Right. And you've seen that happen. You've seen that happen in areas of the business where they haven't evolved enough, but they've got measures and targets that they're trying to get in and might be the woman or the culture diverse person who's been put in as the diverse person and they haven't thrived because the environment isn't there to support them. Mm, And you're basically just setting up that individual up for failure. It's hard. It's really hard. We had some great anecdotes shared by some of our female board members earlier in the year talking about some of their experiences with the movement around getting more gender balance on boards. Uh, And at that point, the target was to have one. And they were talking about how tough it was, how tough to be sitting around the table and being the different one, but knowing that you're bringing such value and a unique perspective into the conversation that you're driving value. And now we're seeing that evolution of more female board members. I want to talk about intersectionality and also equal pay and how it affects different female minority groups within the workplace. Let me start by saying equal pay. There's kind of two distinct fields as you think about pay. You've got pay equity and equal pay. This is about being paid the same. So if we're talking from a gender perspective, that men and women are paid the same for the same role and providing the same value to the organisation. Organisations have a legal obligation to pay their employees equally for equal work. So there is a a lawful stance around equal pay. 
and we can talk a little bit about some of the practices around pay and what to do there in a moment. But I think what's probably even more interesting is around the gender pay gap. And what that's talking about is it's impacted by a, a huge amount of different factors. So it's the composition of the workforce, right? So you're thinking about the roles people are in, the level they're at, the type of work that they do, the industries they are in. The gender pay gap is also impacted by a number of different things that are really embedded in social norms, things like who who takes care of the children, who does the domestic housework. And so when organisations aren't offering the right level of flexibility that women can undertake care and work and progress through the ranks, that impacts the gender pay gap. As well as time out of the workforce, more women are in part-time work, which also extenuates that gender pay gap. So I wanted to make that distinction because there's role-based pay equity which has a legal obligation. Then there's this whole facet around the gender pay gap, which is looking at average earnings between men and women. There is a big divide between those two. And there are so many things that organisations can be doing to help bridge that gap. As it comes to intersectionality, this is where those groups, where we see some of that, those factors around the composition of the workforce, that can impact intersectionality in the gender pay gap. So if we're thinking about women more broadly, if we're thinking about different groups within that, we'll see a greater gender pay gap for different groups. So for instance, we know that women of culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds are more likely to be in part-time, casual or more insecure work, lower paid roles. We also know that migrant women are less likely to be employed than women who are born in Australia. So we can start to see just from a cultural and racial nuance that the gender pay gap would be significantly higher for culturally and linguistically diverse women than it is for white women, white Australian women. There's a lot of research happening in the US around this, but not enough in Australia. We don't have disaggregated data to really help us understand that intersectionality of that gender pay gap. And that's a real challenge that we need to be addressing. So how are you tracking the inequities within the intersectionality? Are you collecting data or are you using research from overseas? As a base point, research is helping us understand that. We are looking more broadly around Australian census data to help us understand intersectionality of the Australian population. We look internally at our own employees to understand and ask them to help us identify them help us understand their identity. And really, we don't yet, and most organisations, all organisations I would say would be in the same boat, is that we have a challenge around data at the moment. And that impacts our ability to really understand where those inequalities lie. Organisations should be doing pay equity analysis and looking at that by gender and any data that they can look at. Most organisations would have data around gender, age, location, level, role, et cetera, and should be looking at that pay equity. Where next evolution lies and where Nirvana is for understanding this is to have really robust measurement around all of those other factors of inclusion and diversity for our employees. And that's really tricky. It is very tricky. (laughs) (laughs) The reason it's tricky is because there's no common standards around data collection for identity. Think about cultural identity Do we ask about ancestry? Do we ask about languages? Do we ask about country of birth, nationality, citizenship, et cetera? 
identity is really personal. And so making sure you ask the right nuanced question to understand your workforce is incredibly important. And also getting the trust from your employees to give you that data. Oh, yep. That's another challenge, isn't it? Absolutely. Because they'd be like, ooh, why do I need to give this to you? But then also like within an identity itself, there's like several different layers because, for example, you were talking about culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. A lot of people have different kind of ancestries under their belt. So, yes, it is complicated, but how can organisations help women more broadly so that they're not at a large disadvantage. Around pay, a couple of things that for organisations who are just getting started, the first is around pay transparency. We announced earlier this year that we're removing pay secrecy clauses from all our employee contracts. What that means is that employees, if they wish to do, can share their pay information with their colleagues, benchmark themselves. Not everyone's going to be comfortable doing that. But just announcing it essentially signals there's nothing to hide here. We can have open and transparent conversations about pay. And that's a really critical first step to opening up those conversations for those people who feel like, hey, I don't feel like I'm getting paid the same level as my colleagues. They can ask. They can have that conversation really transparently. The second thing I would say is conduct pay equity analysis. It's really important to understand if there are any systemic issues in your pay in your remuneration principles that are driving inequalities for certain groups. Use whatever data that you can to do that. And then the third thing I would say is organisations should be trying to understand who their workforce is, really understanding the composition of their workforce and the identities that make up the diversity of that group. That can help, as we've talked about, the gender pay gap, looking at where we are seeing potentially certain groups hovering around certain roles, certain job types, certain parts of the business, certain levels to really help to drive career progression, which we know has a huge impact on the overall pay gap. I really like the idea of pay transparency because I think, why all the secrecy in the first place? Because for frontline roles, as an example, it's clear there's remuneration banding, but I guess as you get higher and higher, it becomes a little bit murky. And I remember just seeing the gaps, the huge gaps in the pay. And it's like, I felt a little helpless at times. And yeah, it's just the systems that have protected these inequities. And I'm so glad that Westpac has rolled out this pay transparency and removed it in contracts. And I've also starting to see it in a lot of organisations as well. So I think that's a great move. A question that I have is, let's just say a woman within a female minority group finds herself in a position where she thinks she's been paid less than her male counterparts. What's the first thing that she should do? So what would you recommend? Speak up. Absolutely speak up. Easier than said than done. But the first thing to do is to go to their direct line manager, say, we need to have a conversation about my pay. Think about your male colleagues and the confidence that they bring to that type of conversation. It takes that one simple sentence to open up that discussion. If you don't get anywhere, it needs to be escalated. Remember, it is unlawful to be paid unequally for equal work. So have that in your back pocket. Know confidently that you have you're within your rights, know your rights, that you can be having that discussion and escalating any concerns that you have around your pay. And that goes back to having those open, transparent pay conversations. Mm. So what if they don't get any resolution from their manager? What if their manager says, 
it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's fair. It's likely a circumstance. And as I said, you need to back yourself with confidence here. It needs to be escalated. It needs to go to your two up. It needs to go to your HR person. If you don't get any love, you need to raise that as a case to your employer. If you don't get anywhere, you do have grounds on fair work to look into it as a case from a legal perspective. The final question, which is how we finish every episode of High Potential with Indeed, is what will it ultimately take to ensure a better and more inclusive workplace in the future? I've got two ideas in how I'm thinking about creating a really inclusive workplace. The first goes back to diversity is who you are, equity is how you're treated, inclusion is how you feel. If you can identify the moments that matter for your employees, whether that's in their personal life, you know, we all go through tough moments and we bring that to work with us. It impacts us. We also you know, have moments in our careers, pay conversations, new roles, retirement, different moments that really matter. If we can have our leaders and our colleagues support our employees through those moments that matter and make sure they feel safe, supported and included, that has a huge ripple effect on the entire environment that people operate in. So as we currently stand and why we don't have that is because people don't understand that level of intersectionality that people experience. They don't understand the lived experiences of our people. So what we need to have, and I'm talking about the mighty middle here, we're talking about the huge workforce that sits under top leadership, our grassroots, we need to have upstanders we have people, you know, no bystanders. We've started this work on sexual harassment and saying we expect there to be no bystanders. Everyone is an upstander. If you walk past something, you condone it. And so we need all of our people leaders, all of our employees to see when there is a moment that matters and someone is treated differently or not supported or felt included during that moment that they need to be calling that out. It's this speak up culture, this transparency, open conversations. And as people are treated equitably feel safe and included through those moments that matter for them, not only are they building greater loyalty for the organisation and their careers, but they are also experiencing a much more inclusive work environment. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jess, for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Higher Potential with Indeed. Before you go and start building a better workplace, don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a review if you found this podcast helpful. If you'd like to read our full DNI report, click the link in this episode's description and fill out the form. Just a quick note, the views and opinions expressed in this episode by the guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Indeed. Additionally, the information in this episode does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all content we discuss is for general informational purposes only, and you should consult with a legal professional for any legal issues you may be experiencing.